This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Today we have a really exciting and special show. We're going to be talking about Goddard's new undergraduate sexuality studies concentration with Zalika Hepworth-Clark, who is an undergraduate faculty member and co-founder and core faculty in Goddard's new undergraduate sexuality studies concentration. Zalika, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much. How did you get into this field of sexuality studies and what is the field of sexuality studies? Mm. I got interested in sexuality studies because Mostly, my mom said I could study whatever I wanted, and she took me to Barnes and Nobles, and I could look at any book that I wanted to, and I ended up a lot of times in the self-help section or books about sexuality, and I became interested in it, and I studied sexuality at NYU for my undergraduate program. And I have my master's in education of human sexuality and then my PhD in human sexuality. So I love the field. And you can study it from multiple perspectives. For example, biology, history, sociology, psychology, anthropology, 
philosophy. So there were many different approaches, and I just really liked that there were still opportunities to contribute to the field and to add to knowledge and it being so important to many people's well-being and being able to understand humans, too. So that's how I kind of got into it, and it's an interdisciplinary field. So what, what aspects of this field most interest you and that you're most passionate about? Oh, thank you. I love the intersection of culture and sexuality. I love studying the diversity of people, and so I've really been interested in looking at narratives that have not been highlighted in conventional discourse or in sexuality studies in general within the United States. So I've been really feeling empowered and liberated through learning about African sexualities and eroticism. And I am really passionate about decolonizing our understanding of sexuality and gender. So looking at exploring pre-colonial understandings of gender and sexuality and imagining what sexuality and gender can look like without patriarchy or without other systemic forms of oppression. And so really, I'm most passionate about how sexuality can liberate and empower us and how our embodied wisdom and self-knowledge and awareness can lead to enlightenment. Could you talk about the differences between our largely patriarchal, white-dominated Western sexuality from some of the cultural traditions that you're studying and the difference, the fundamental differences that can be experienced or that we do experience between the two and how um, what you're studying offers? Sure. Thank you. The first thing I'd like to talk about in answering that is a concept that I learned in my decolonial studies, the pluriversity. So thinking about that there are multiple worlds that can exist simultaneously without hierarchy. So when I introduce different ways of understanding, different ways of knowing, different ways of being sexual, it's not to suggest that one is better than the other, but to kind of celebrate the differences and allow us to learn from different ways of knowing and ways of being. And so, more academically speaking, I'm really interested in the epistemology and the ontology, so the study of how we know what we know and, and the study of being. And so, what has been helpful for me in understanding non-Western, kind of patriarchal, white, capitalistic, hegemonic narratives, I came across a concept called oceanality. And that's hard to define simply, but it is uh, African eroticism that affirms the normality of pleasure 
and sensuality. And it's not based on phallocentric notions of sex. And if I may share one narrative to kind of highlight a different understanding of sex. So, first of all, sex is a whole other topic that we've been conditioned to or how it's been defined by people who are in power and have kind of reproduced in knowledge production is then very limited. For example, penis and vagina equals sex. But actually, it's much more expansive than that. But if we want to stick to that definition, there's also a narrative called The Devouring Vagina, which basically talks about the vagina engulfing the penis and it's enveloped, it's swallowed, it's made to disappear. And it talks about it and, you know, uses the metaphor to devour or eat or to assert one's power or will over it, yet it does not deny power to that which is eaten because what is eaten provides nourishment to the eater. And it has, like, the penis frantic activity of withdrawal and being pulled in and re-swallowed and withdraw again might seem as resistance. So I just love that narrative because it's a different one than the Western, the penis is going to conquer the vagina, kind of even looking at the Latin definition of vagina is something similar to a sword holder that it, it translates to. So I really like that there's different narratives offered to allow us to deconstruct the narratives that we've been told and provide an alternative narrative, not that that's the only narrative, but to allow us to think outside of how we've been conditioned to think. And so I use that as an example to share that there are narratives that we haven't really been exposed to or it's not common. And I love highlighting the kind of old wisdom that has survived in many cultures. I love that it suggests of leveling the playing field and, as you say, deconstructing some of the more culturally dominant narratives. And I want to invite you to share any narratives that you want during our conversation because I think these narratives and some of the metaphors that you're using are so helpful for expanding our understanding and awareness of what's possible in this realm. Yes, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and that's what I love about just highlighting different narratives and different experiences because it really can open up our awareness and possibilities and allow us and remind us of our embodied wisdom and experience and the abundance of love as well and pleasure and euphoria as possibilities. Right. There's often been in Western history a disconnection, a profound disconnection between sexuality and love, that it has often been a male-dominated or male-dominating quest and it still is in this culture to a large degree. And some of the most recent movements, like Me Too, 
are challenging that for the first time in our cultural history. Yes. Western languages tend to be binary. And when you look into the philosophy, there's a lot of times a separation between mind and body and spirit. But there's other ways of understanding what it means to be human from different cultures and different philosophies that can really speak to the complexities and the holistic notion of what it means to be human and to leave out love and to leave out sensuality and communication and relating is, you know, it's what some people do, but it's the revival and knowing that actually you can be multiple things simultaneous, that you can have different understanding of your experience and, and passion. And I think consent is also a good piece of the conversation when interacting with each other. You know, it's one thing when you love someone and they don't love you back, but it's very beautiful when people can love each other and there's a sense of reciprocity and respect and connection in mutual ways. I think that's something to celebrate. As opposed to it being dictated, you were assigned male at birth, therefore you need to be masculine, therefore you need to be attracted to a female assigned at birth. And it's very scripted and limiting, and it works for a lot of people, but for some people they try to conform to the norms that have been kind of dictated in our culture, and it doesn't work for them. And they'll find through their embodied wisdom and authenticity that that's not their truth. And so, yeah, leaving room for diversity and other ways of being and relating with each other and loving. Right, being open to experimenting with and exploring the unknown, new areas. Yeah, and not even making the assumption that you are the same that you've always been and leaving room for transformation. I love mindfulness because it kind of allows me to examine myself without judgment and with a beginner's mind and to explore myself without judgment. And so what areas of your body can facilitate pleasure or what are you attracted to? Not even in a sexual sense, but in a sensual sense, because actually sensuality is a part of sexuality. And it's actually sexuality doesn't have to revolve around sex or, you know, it's more expansive than that. And it can be spiritual and it can be empowering. And there's so many possibilities and not to assume that where we are is going to be who we are forever. And that when we're committed to growth and being our best self and living our best life, it may look differently. And there's different circumstances that may open us up to different possibilities and in tune with different desires and forms of attraction. And what does our well-being look like? What does fulfillment look like? What is what is pleasurable for us may, may change, too. And being open to that is fun. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful for how beautifully and articulately you're talking about all of this. And I'd love to get into what you're doing here at Goddard with the Sexuality Studies Concentration. Well, what we have at Goddard is really a historic event because the Sexuality Studies 
Concentration is the first anti-racist sexuality education program founded by scholars of African descent in the United States. So myself and Dr. Harukuti are committed to erotic justice and the decolonization program. And so with Goddard's low-residency model and learning-centered approach, it really works well with our specialties that we can contribute. So we're also really interested in increasing sexual literacy with a focus on intersectionality, diversity, and decolonization. And so we're really clear in our mission of creating the Sexuality Studies Concentration Program at Goddard to emphasize self-reflexivity and self-determination and sexual and relational well-being and compassion and love and respect and social justice, including racial justice, ecological justice, erotic justice, economic justice, gender justice, relational justice, epistemic justice, and unlearning oppressive hierarchical mentalities associated with racism and sexism and ableism and classism and heterosexism and monosexism, all these big fancy jargons, but really begin to be aware of the impact of settler colonialism and white capitalistic heteropatriarchal views of sexuality, eroticism, and gender and relationships and highlight non-hegemonic discourses that can really enrich our understanding and study of human sexuality, laying the foundation for liberation. And part of what, you know, Hurukuti and I, our specialty is really celebrating the diversity and understanding that there are multiple ways of understanding and learning about sexual literacy and exploring individuals' diverse identities and expressions and orientation and relationship structures. And we really believe that people have the right to love and pleasure and experience the erotic and to have access to accurate, comprehensive sexuality information and to learning about what sexual, erotic, and relationship well-being looks like to each individual. So we're just really excited that we finally launched this program and it is running. And this is like the second semester that it's going through. And we we are doing a SAR training. Is SAR is our Sexual Attitude Reassessment and Restructuring, which are really to sexuality uh certifications if people are interested in becoming a certified sex therapist or sex counselor or sexuality educator. This is one of the important training that people go through. And Harukati and I designed the decolonial SAR, which we are doing this semester. And it's really exciting work. Listening to you, it occurs to me that we are really just starting to emerge out of a kind of dark age of of ignorance (laughs) (laughs) around sexuality and how integral all of these different aspects of sexuality are to human experience, human being, and what's possible and what is, because the amazing diversity of human experience has been largely kept 
under wraps and hidden away in closets for various oppressive reasons. But it's it's kind of mind-boggling to realize and acknowledge that we really are just beginning to come out of a, a dark age. And I think historically, people in the West think of the dark ages as being many centuries ago. But I have to say, we're still living in the dark ages today. Well, I, I definitely hear that. And I think that the more I know, the more I realize how much I don't know. So even me being a leading expert in, you know, black sexuality studies or oceanality, for example, I still am aware that there's so much more to know. And I love that I'm humble because I learn something new about sexuality almost every week, for sure, almost every day some new identity that I didn't know about or new gender expression that I've never seen before. And even though I've been studying this academically, rigorously for over a decade, there is still so much to learn and grow from. All of these communities that are beginning to, I think, I'm very grateful for the Internet and how information is more accessible right now. And... I just really also want to acknowledge, you know, there's things that we know we know, and there's things that we know we don't know, but there's also things that we don't know we don't know. And that's the part where I love when we expand our awareness of what we don't know, because now we know that we don't know it, as opposed to we don't even know that we don't know it. And so just kind of making room for the infinite possibilities and expanded ways of knowing and learning and knowledge that can be provided through sexuality studies. Oh, so beautifully said. I love that. So maybe we could talk about Oshun. Sure. I haven't been to Brazil, but Brazil has this mystique of a much greater openness to pleasure and sensuality and sexuality. I wonder how Oshun plays in this. Oshun is one of, you could talk more about this, but Oshun is one of the goddesses of the Orishas, which originally dates back to traditional African cultures. I would love for you to talk more about that and, yes. and how it explores and opens up the possibilities and experience of sexuality in the human realm. Oh, thank you so much for that question. It is loaded and it is very challenging to explain in English because I just want to say that when describing Orishas, we tend to have the patriarchalization that happens because they tend to be very gender fluid and they're not understood and Western ways of understanding gender and deity. So when I think of Orisha, we are talking about an African-inspired spiritual tradition out of the Yoruba, modern-day Nigeria, and Yoruba is the genderless language. So even their understanding of God is beyond gender. When I think about Orishas as kind of a force of nature, as a different entities or matrix, that have many, there's over 400 kinds of Orishas, and a lot of them, for example, Eshu is known as the trickster, 
and is known to have a vagina behind his penis. And I say he because I'm still decolonizing my language and I'm speaking English. Or Oshumare associated with the rainbow is female half the year and male the other half. So just to highlight some of the gender fluidity and diversity within the Orisha. Now speaking of Oshun, known as the goddess of love and art, not only to be linked with beauty, grace, elegance, charm, independence, warriorhood, or rulership. She's associated with healing and wisdom. She's also known as the river goddess, associated with sweet waters. She is a warrior as well as a peacemaker. She is an ever-renewing source. But, you know, defining Oshun is as fluid as trying to grab water from which she is derived. So to categorize her, I, you know, I can't do justice, but I'm going to still try. She's known as the original feminist. Alice Walker describes her as outrageous, having audacity, courageous, and willful, responsible, in charge, and serious. She's known to be very knowledgeable and brave. And there's lots of amazing stories that talk about Oshun as a human rights activist as well as a caregiver of children. And so there is, oh my God, okay, so she, Oshun is the divinity of fertility, wealth, joy, sensuality, childbirth, protector of women, and giver of children to barren women. She is also known as being in charge of being the vital source of life. She's known as a source an archetypal female conduit through which all life flows is the epitome of sensuality and sexual pleasure. She speaks to female sexual knowledge and agency. She is ruled over the erotic component of human nature, including Latina sexuality. And yet in Brazil, she is known as all of these things as well, because there's a very strong knowledge of her in the Candomblé, Afro-Brazilian spiritual system. Um, and when you look at people, initiates, who love and adore and celebrate and worship Oshun, daughters of Oshun, tend to really be aware of all the realms of sensuality and Oshun is also known as the source of passion and the goddess of erotic. She is a god who knows and controls and enjoys her body and her sexuality. She also represents the power of knowledge. I love this poem by Audre Lorde that talks about Oshun and I lie together in the heart of her body, truth my voice becomes stronger. Oshun is also the Orisha of unconditional love, reciprocity, diplomacy. She's known for sensuality and artistic development and beauty. She, as a water divinity, she symbolizes clarity and the flowing motion. So there's so much about Oshun and so many different narratives and stories that you can find within Nigeria, within Brazil, within Cuba, within Trinidad. There's awesome stories that really speak to the 
possibilities. So when I did my studies in Brazil and I spoke to people who are well familiar with Oshun and there's so many amazing lessons that I learned, but a big one was to be careful of how Western and American I was and how I'm projecting that onto others and different ways of knowing. So, for example, when I was interviewing my participants, I would ask them, you know, what's your race? And I'm thinking, I'm going to get a Brazilian answer. Now, Brazil has over 30 categories of race, way more. It's very different than how American constructs race. And one of the interesting responses was Soto Bank, which is like, it's all good. I was like, oh, wow. He's like, got the all good race. And I'm like, oh, I I didn't even know what to do with that because it was just, I wasn't expecting it. But in my self-reflective piece, I'm like, well, you know, I should be more open to any possibilities and not to box people in with my American kind of constructs. Another nice response that I liked when I was asking about what is your, you know, sexual orientation, a couple of the responses says it's normal. And I asked, well, by the time I got it the second time, I said, what do you mean by normal? Normal, normal is todo el mundo. Normal is everything. It said normal is heterosexual, bisexual, transsexual, asexual, homosexual. They just named all the sexualities that they could. It said, you know, it's you Americans that want to box you in. And I thought about, you know, I thought about what if everything was normal, even abnormality would be normal. Like, you know, just to embrace whatever it is. And then it's not even about <laughs> normal. It's just about being authentic and living your truth. Mm. Yeah. And so just really tuning into not when when you talk about affirming and celebrating sensualities and having a non-judgmental approach are just like, you know, in Condomble, sin doesn't exist. So sin is known to be a construct that is used to control people through Christianity. If they don't they don't have that awareness and they don't really do binaries good and bad or right or wrong. It's a very different understanding of spiritual systems. You want to try to live a good life because we are vessels of spiritual beings that are, you know, are that we worship. And so you don't want to violate others because you're violating another being with thousands of years of history. And so I think that what happened for me in really setting the intention of emancipating myself from patriarchal, white, kind of restricted notions of sexuality, I began to tune into how much pleasure that can be derived through the senses thinking about the most delicious food you've ever tasted and how much pleasure and joy that can bring to us. And it doesn't have to be sexual, although it can be sexual in nature, but thinking about sexuality as a, as a conduit or as a catalyst for pleasure and fulfillment. And so thinking about music in the ways that brings joy and Hashtag eargasm, because your ear can also be a sex organ, that your sex organs don't have to be limited to the genitalia, that your nose can provide, you know, 
pleasure for the things that you love to smell the most that brings you a sense of peace and joy and that's also known as olfactive sexuality so the pleasures and eroticisms that can be derived through smell or sight and beauty and also like when I looked at how Oshun was in tune with the beauty of the world to be able to recognize the beauty of nature and to be able to recognize the beauty of things that may not even be aesthetic, although I very obviously for my embodied wisdom that a sunset can be so beautiful to me and my subjective experience and pleasure that can be derived from my eyes. But beauty can be something that is beyond what we can even see. And Western tend to privilege sight. So like even the idea of world view, it privileges sight as opposed to having world sense, which is also what we in kind of African feminist literature have read about world sense as opposed to world view. But all the senses that, that can have potential for joy through our skin and through you know, sound, all these things can be very joyous. And without judgment, I was able to really unlearn phallocentric notions of sex, that sex doesn't have to revolve around a penis, and then also it doesn't have to revolve around a vagina or any of those things. I was sharing about the devouring vagina concept with a priest and one of my participants in my study, and they made a comment, something to the effect of, Make love with the wind. It will be truly powerful. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, we're so focusing on genital to genital. And then I went into the sexuality literature and I'm familiar with ecosexuals and lovers of nature and having different people that love different aspects of nature, whether that's water or being in love with the earth or being in love with the sky or you know there's so many different things people can be passionate about and that can bring them joy so just opening up and expanding and tuning into pan sensuality and how can we unlearn these limited narratives so that i can be more in tune with the joys that can be derived from my body and that's different for everyone and it may change and so just being open to new possibilities for yourself so that was some of the things that learning about Oshun brought to my mind and and one other thing is self-love I see Oshun is often depicted with her holding a mirror and looking at herself and she's known as being vain But I think, you know, first of all, there's a lot of symbolism in the mirror that we're ultimately looking at a reflection. It can be used as a weapon. She's also looking behind her and aware of her environment, but she is also enjoying the beauty of herself. And thinking about that kind of powerful imagery really allowed me to utilize self-love, radical self-love, and auto-sexuality, the love of self, as a tool to unlearn problematic or harmful narratives and oppressive forces that I've possibly internalized. So misogynoir, the hatred of black women, you know, it's conditioned in the media and in a lot of the information that I'm exposed to in America, but using self-love as a way 
to decolonize, I created a model, the auto-sexual decolonization process that really spoke to me becoming aware of how to use self-love to unlearn negative effects of colonial mentality as it related to my sexuality and increasing my awareness and deconstructing colonial concepts of love and gender and sexuality and reconstructing it for myself and not shying away from my spirituality or what might not be able to articulate with language or that may not even be in the literature yet and very empowering experience that essentially led to like a type of rebirth that I felt that once my mind was expanded, it's hard to go back to old dimensions. And so really looking at how there was almost a death of my ignorant self and making room for a rebirth of a new of new ways of being and having moments of liberation was very powerful and Brazil definitely was helpful in getting me out of an environment that I was used to and being in tune to different ways of connecting with nature and different ways of understanding the human body and different ways of relating and thinking about the simple things that can bring joy, like sleeping (laughs) and things that can bring you joy and healing. I mean, sleep is also known as being very healing for the body. Anyway, there's so much joy that can be derived from many different possibilities, depending on who you are and what brings you joy. This is so wonderful, and I can see why you're so excited about this whole field. It's totally contagious. I'm enjoying this so much. And what you've been talking about is is this complete dissolving or working towards this complete dissolving of boundaries of every kind, you know, in every way we can experience and be present in the world and engaging with everything around us, and that we can be intimate with any and every part of the world around us. A friend who liked to end all of her emails with make love and this notion Mm. of we can make love with anything or anyone in any way and doing it through sex is is just one one of an infinite ways of engaging of making love with the world and having that kind of deeply intimate experience i love that and the abundance of love and how we can contribute to increasing our awareness of the abundance and tuning into all the ways that we can facilitate increasing our awareness of the power of love and i think another thing i wanted to mention is you said boundaries and it reminded me that you know people do have different preferences and being aware of what you don't like or what turns you off is a part of it as well and i think you know boundaries can be important to define but also just being open to new possibilities and healing and creating different ways of understanding yourself and understanding the possibilities of transformation and you know the neuroplasticity of our brain but of our sexuality of our different possibilities that are available to us 
And sometimes that's maybe being in a different environment or sometimes just being exposed to different reading materials or talking with people and just really appreciating the inner landscape of ourselves. And I think mindfulness has been very helpful in really just taking the time to be in relation to yourself and others in, in different ways. And there's also a phrase we like to use in sexuality education is don't yuck my yum. You know, it's like what's good for you may be good for you. What may be traumatic for one person may not be traumatic for another. And just kind of respecting everyone where they're at. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But we also are now talking about the platinum rule, which is do unto others as they would have done unto themselves. And so, like, looking at respect looks differently for different people, but really being aware that what is good for us may not be good for another and really respecting where other people are at. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from practicing non-judgment, and that's been very helpful for me. And I'm just so appreciative of people that are different because they can teach me things that I either don't want to be or they can inspire me to be more of creating different possibilities of how I would like to be or maybe things that I'd like to try. And so I really love celebrating diversity personally. I learned so much even from the asexual community. People who don't like having sex uh, really have taught me a lot. I wouldn't say the most because I don't want to be hierarchical, but they've taught me a lot about relating and different ways of being non-sexual as a part of sexuality. That we have to, you know, being careful and being so sex positive, it also includes the right not to do things. Like, it's, it's really, to me, self-determination is something I really value and support people in living their truth, whatever that is, even if it's different than me, with very few exceptions. You know, consent being a very important piece of that and respect. So, mm-hmm. thank you. Mm, thank you. So beautiful to hear all of that. I'm so grateful. And I'm speaking with Dr. Zuleika Hepworth-Clark, who is an undergraduate faculty member at Goddard College and co-founder and core faculty in Goddard's new undergraduate sexuality studies concentration. And this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio everything you're talking about is really all about this this expansiveness of possibility of of learning and opening ourselves to learning what is possible and and considering that we live in in an expanding universe there seems to be no end to what's what's possible and what can become possible so i love everything you've been saying thank you yeah i think um releasing shame been really helpful in my process of liberation. So you got it, that unlimited possibilities and being more aware of the possibilities that we can create for ourselves is very powerful. And we have the capacity within our bodies to begin to tune into different possibilities. Yes, and you mentioned the word shame, and I think in this culture 
a lot of work needs to be done to heal shame and trauma around the way limitations have been imposed upon us and imposed upon others and just witnessing how such limitations have been imposed upon others can be very traumatic to us and make us feel terrified to allow ourselves to be who who we sense that we are or that we may be or that perhaps we just want to explore but how dangerous it might be to do that in an open way in this culture. Absolutely, and I think that safety is a big, important piece because the reality is that it is not safe for many people to live their authentic expressions and that many people have died and are dying and are murdered because of their authentic way of being and expressing themselves. And there is a lot of healing that we need to do there is transgenerational trauma that needs to be addressed, in my opinion, and so much healing. And that's a part of the work as well, and finding support for what can be healing for you and that may look different, that healing looks different for different people. And, for example, a student at Goddard studied how kink and BDSM could be a way of healing trauma. And so different people have different ways of healing. And it's interesting how even in, I'm also reading a book about sexuality in slavery and how, you know, in very extreme conditions that there are still possibilities of pleasure. But again, I think that you do bring up a good point that there's work to be done around shame, a lot of work to be done around trauma, and there's a lot of power in witnessing and just listening in a way to people's truths and providing support and finding your support system and yourself, expanding on self-care, caring for yourself and having some self-compassion for, you know, a lot of times I think people for surviving everything that they've survived up until this moment and that a lot of times the darkness or atrocities that have come about can be seen as a opportunity or increased awareness of survival mechanisms and your healing capacities that has possibilities for so there are many different experiences, and unfortunately, there are experiences that have been not pleasant, but I just want to hold hope that things can change and you can relate and heal in different ways to begin to walk along a path towards empowerment and liberation that there are so many possibilities and strengths within each of us. And I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the term kink and talking about allowing kink to come out of the closet, of course, with full consent and as being part of, of the, the entire equation of sexuality and, and human being and, and the possibilities of human experience across all realms 
and of course all of human life is I mean we arbitrarily divided up into separate areas but really human life human experience is one whole experience and we have Harukati in the studio with us Dr. Harukati Sharif Williams, who is an undergraduate faculty member and co-founder and core faculty in Goddard's new undergraduate sexuality studies concentration, along with Orlando Zane Hunter Jr. and Ricardo Valentine, who are Brotherhood Dance. And perhaps we should start with you, Harukati. I've been talking with Zaleka about the sexuality studies concentration and she's amazingly articulate and passionate about this and it's been so delicious listening to everything she said you haven't really gotten to hear everything but i suspect you've already had these conversations with her so you know where she's coming from so yes, go ahead I was listening. Yeah, so yeah, i would yeah. love for you to uh, jump in and and add anything and talk about anything that you feel is appropriate mm. sure so i want to thank my colleague for holding down the mic while <laughs> while I was in residency. The concentration has been eight years in the making, and we're really, really excited to have it exist and to mark the occasion by having a residency theme, Why Sex Matters, or the body as foreground for creative expression, for justice, for healing. And we've brought some amazing, amazing guest presenters into our residency community to engage the undergraduate programs in these conversations. And two of those folks are, as you said, in studio here with us, the duo of Brotherhood Dance, the company that I actually just observed their workshop with our students. Really, really powerful. Like. They needed to go and get lunch, but our students were holding them down <laughs> with consent. <laughs> it's consent culture. Uh, and really, really appreciating the gift of an epistemology that comes through embodiment, mm-hmm. through the body. And these are our folks that also bring a different color to Vermont, if you excuse the pun, uh, 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 <laughs> in the sense that they are rooted in African and African diasporic traditions of knowledge creation, of healing, of sustainability, of thinking about community and being in community and practicing community. So as one of the co-founders... And expanding community. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So as one of the co-founders and core faculty in the sexuality studies concentration at Goddard College, I am honored to be a midwife to what we are birthing here Mm -hmm. in Plainfield, Vermont. Yeah, it sounds like this is going to be a very long, ongoing birthing process. Definitely. Yeah. So, you guys, I would love to hear you talk about the work you're doing and also your experience of coming here and engaging with Harukati and people on on campus who are involved in this sexuality studies concentration and how it relates to your work, your dance work, your, your creativity well, today we hosted a workshop called Sense, Sensibility, and Deep Sensation, where we take the community members on a meditative journey at the beginning through the elements of earth, air, fire, water. Then we go through opening our chi. That's like 
getting the energy in the body moving. And then we do some hands-on situations where we do something like skin touch, muscle touch, bone touch. So the different layers of touching and sensing and feeling. And then we moved into some Orisha movement, which is um, movement from the diaspora that incite healing through ideas of water or ideas of social justice, like Shango, like cutting down something like any kind of oppression or oppressive thoughts within your body. Um, so it was embodied practices of letting go. And then we did a workshop that we like to call Writing Your Truth, that we ask the community members, when they need help, they do what? And what was another what one? What is safety? What is safety or what is the erotic? And we have them write from there and they circle words and then create movements from those words. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be very powerful for the students because they were actually able to have real embodied sense of these words that they kind of use every day or throw around but never really have a embodied sense or a a sense of agency in moving those words if you will so it it was really powerful to watch them witness to watch them go through that experience sounds like you use different aspects forms of creativity in your work it's mm-hmm. not just dance or movement you're you're bringing Probably every element that you can <laughs> that you feel is appropriate to to bring into the into it. Absolutely, I think the approach that we took for this specific work, and I think that we take for most of our works, is looking at a world view, looking at a global perspective. And it's interesting because that connects with Dr. Tracy Gilbert's presentation last night, which was the use of grounded theory in the creation of an African Black sexual epistemology. And she talked about the role of anti-blackness in the United States and that anti-blackness is also a form of genocide. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That it is the investment in the wiping out of blackness, of black people, of the black body. It is about the connection, the association of blackness with death. Mm -hmm. And creating a self-fulfilling prophecy of systems that actually perform death on black people and the black body. So there, there are a lot of connections, both intentional and unintentional, throughout the residency based upon the, the folks that we brought and the residency theme. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I'm really curious how the two of you got into the dance and the expression and creativity that you did where did that come from? Because in this workshop, you invited people to have an experience mm-hmm. to engage in ways that perhaps they they either never had or they may never have even known was possible. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you are more than just giving them permission. You are inviting them to have a whole new experience. I'm wondering, where did that come from for you? Because I know people out there are probably particular people who are listening to the show are hungry for new experience and ways to explore the possibilities of their own experience in in any and every conceivable way and perhaps would like to know where they can turn how what where are the doors that they can look to because many of these doors are so foreign to us that we wouldn't even recognize that they are doors hmm. even if they're right in front of us right 
Um, we like to say that we choreograph dances of freedom. So we use movement that's ancestral to us that we grew up doing. If we heard something on the radio and we're moving our bodies, you know, that kind of improvisation on your self, you know, some people might not even see, you know, or think that when they hear their favorite song, when they do a little jig, you know, that that's self-love mm-hmm. or self-care. Engaging in life. Exactly. So we cre- have created a model for ourselves that's, that we say we use the dances of freedom from the diaspora, the African diaspora, to share, to open people up. Because we have a rich system that is oftentimes overlooked as a way of and mode of knowing and embodied knowledge for us is a mode of knowing and understanding the world. So, like we were talking about today, doing dances of Yemeya, which is a symbolic of deep water healing, you know, moving and undulating your spine, that being a mode of knowing or things bubbling up out of the body in terms of memory from the depths of the ocean, Olokun. So, we think about those kinds of systems of knowledge as we are sharing, as we move into different spaces and assess the space to see what's needed. And then we can pull from our body lexicon, if you will, to be able to share with whatever community we're engaging with. On a practical level, how can people reach Brotherhood Dance? What's your website? <laughs> Our website is behooddance.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram, behood.dance, and look at our stories, Insta stories, and photos of our artistic journey and practice. Are you available for people to invite you Absolutely. to teach and to present? Absolutely. Yes, we're very open to all kinds of community. We're heading to Mexico next week to join a community and share these practices with them because we're looking at the Afro-Mexican population who is often invisibilized within the Mexican national identity. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if the, if the two of you realize this. You may, Ricardo, because you, you go to school in Vermont, but Vermont battles for either the first or second whitest state mm-hmm. in the union. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it incarcerates more black folks, particularly black men, mm-hmm. than 98% of the states in, in the union. Wow, uh, what, a, what a strange irony, considering <laughs> that Vermont is also one of the most liberal states right. in the country. And so there's definitely a need for the medicine mm-hmm. that the two of you bring to communities here, to black folks in Vermont who experience, even within the white liberalism, Mm -hmm. who experience extreme amounts of state repression, state Mm -hmm. violence, Mm -hmm. social isolation, alienation, community, Mm -hmm. um, to be able to use embodied knowledge, embodied epistemology, Mm -hmm. to ask and answer these critical questions of what it means to be liberal and liberating. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I was earlier talking with Zalaika about how listening to her, it seemed to me that 
we're still just emerging from the dark ages. Hmm. Yeah, I, um, and yeah. When I say dark ages, uh, I mean ignorance. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah I, I, um, I tend not to associate darkness with, with negativity because we are we are birthed in darkness. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking the darkness more, of the more moon. historically and metaphorically right. from old history. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, and even that is a European history that yes, that exactly. defined ignorance with darkness. <laughs> right. Uh, exactly. When uh, we look at um, the University of Timbuktu or the Kemetic universities that taught Greece and what it meant to know and come to know in Timbuktu, which was a great house of wisdom for the old world. And so we are still in a place of trying to figure out what this grand experiment of the United States means. Mm -hmm. And are we going to hold on to the mythology of its greatness, past, present, and future? Or are we actually going to do the work the difficult work, the uncomfortable work, the necessary work, the deep work of actually becoming. What yeah. we can become yeah. and, and what we supposedly aspire to become. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But we have to give up the lies. We have to give up the mythology. We well, we also up, have to mm-hmm. look at the lies mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. open up the closet mm-hmm. doors and, and say, yes, that's the content of my closet mm-hmm. and really own it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if we don't do that... We're not going to get anywhere. That's like the first step, Mm -hmm. right? And that's why sex and sexuality is such a powerful medium to have these conversations Mm -hmm. because of the nudity and nakedness of intimacy, Mm -hmm. Ah. emotional intimacy or physical intimacy. The nudity and nakedness of that requires us to practice vulnerability. So as a sexologist and as a sex educator, it's my deep knowledge and belief that there is a role for sex in social justice and not just merely creating systems where people can be their full selves sexually but that actually sex and sexuality is and can be a social justice praxis Hmm. because of what it requires us to do Mm -hmm. and that goes back to that sense of being vulnerable being authentic being able to recognize one's boundaries, one's limitations, engaging in consent, knowing how to be present for someone else's experience, Hmm. being able to ask permission, being able to receive a denial of permission. And if we can do it in that realm, perhaps, and know that we can do it in that realm, then we could do it everywhere. Right, yes, Mm -hmm. right. The realm of sexuality is such a minefield for Western, particularly white culture, especially considering in this country, we were basically founded at least partially on puritanical Mm -hmm. values Mm -hmm. and ethics, Mm -hmm. which to me just seems so Mm -hmm. bizarre and (laughs) twisted, so anti-life. And settler colonialism. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about consent and permission Hmm. and the taking of land... And the idea that land can be traded, and you you had basically two different cultures that were operating and trying to communicate. So a culture that didn't understand this notion of, and didn't have this notion of private ownership of land. Right, uh, that that fluidity. Right. Right, all this fluidity that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about is so inherent in life, and yet Western culture has been 
dividing and conquering mm-hmm. from as far back as Western history goes. Mm-hmm. Well, at least as far back as patriarchal Western history goes, because right. uh, pre-patriarchal Western culture, there were systems uh, of communalism. Mm-hmm. When I think of history, I think yeah. of what's been written down. Mm-hmm. 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 Right, because yeah. the victors get to write history. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but there's knowing in the bones. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but right. there's knowing if, in the bones. If you allow the space right. to hear it. Exactly, to access yeah. it, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is the second semester of the sexuality studies concentration. Yes. yes. So what have you guys been exploring? What have your students been exploring so far? Yeah, sure. Um, So we have students exploring the gamut of sexuality. I have a student who has been exploring ecosexuality. So one's relationship with the erotic core of the earth and one's own erotic core. Also exploring... Well, talk... Don't just gloss over. Okay, all right. (laughs) (laughs) See, I do this every day. So for me, it's like, hey, you know, that's that. (laughs) Just remember remember that that our listeners and me, Mm -hmm. we don't know anything about some of these mm-hmm, things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, ecosexuality in uh, kind of Western context has been developed in the last maybe 10 years. And it is about people recognizing that there are other ways of connecting with the earth other than earth as mother. Mm. What about earth as lover? Mm. And so if you imagine the earth as a lover, right, what are the kinds of systems that you need to put in place to treat that lover well. Mm. Yeah, right. Yes. I I recently (laughs) interviewed Charles Eisenstein, and his latest book is called Climate, A New Story, and he talks about how in order to really address this climate issue, we need to fall in love with the earth. Mm -hmm. So in essence, that means we have to recognize the earth as our lover, as Mm -hmm. our partner Mm -hmm. in that most intimate way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Otherwise, we may be doomed. Mm-hmm, That's yeah. unfortunate because some people don't even know how to treat their own lovers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Or anything. Or anything. Well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so then, how do you, you know, create that relationship? What kind of therapies do you need to go through in order to impart that kind of love, impart that kind of compassion to any kind of body? Right. What's hanging up in your closet mm-hmm. that's holding you back? Or how many? I mean, what kind of wardrobe of, of limitation mm-hmm. and, and dysfunction do we have in our closet mm-hmm. that most people are either unaware of or they're ashamed to acknowledge? Mm-hmm. You ask, how do we do that? Yeah, how mm. do we do that? Mm-hmm. So ecosexuals have been exploring various ways of being in a love relationship with the earth. And they go from the more philosophical to asking and answering the kinds of questions that we've been exploring to actually engaging in sexual intercourse and sexual exchange with the earth, be it with the land or with a tree or with the ocean, like actually making love to Mm. the various parts of the earth. And it doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. It can be sensual, mm-hmm. heart-based, mm-hmm, embodied. Mm-hmm, yeah. It can be all of those things. All of those mm-hmm. things, Inclu- and any of them. Right, right including sex. Yeah. Including sex, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Yeah. But in our culture, we have to <laughs> acknowledge that it, it can be more than just sex, because mm-hmm. sex is such an obsession. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It is both marginalized and commodified. 
Yes. Mm. And in both the marginality and the commodification, the fullness of what it is has actually been minimized. Mm. Um, So when I say sex, oftentimes I'm speaking of something that is much larger and much more expansive than what the average person on on the street is is experiencing. Right. The English language Hmm. can be very limited Hmm. in the way the words, the terms can be used Mm -hmm. or can be shared. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in a meaningful way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I heard Zuleika talking about that earlier. Yeah, yeah. I think that's for us while we do a workshop, what we call writing your truth, which we did with the participants today, because we understand that these words coming out of our mouths are limited. And then we're trying to explain something outside of ourselves. But then when we turn those words into ourselves and we can create a gesture, a symbol, then the other things start to open up in our minds or in our understanding or our awareness as to what a reality can be. Yes, I think, you know, we should start actually learning ASL because that... What is ASL? Sign language. Oh, nice. Because I think that they have another world that's offered and understood that doesn't have anything to do with what's happening in my throat right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they can, they can explain maybe the sunrise or the past, present, future in time and space rather than trying to say before or after or I'm coming to you. You know, like... Mm-hmm. It's, more, it's a more embodied mm-hmm. kind of a language. Exactly. Which, for me, not knowing sign language at all, it's foreign to me, but I can I can imagine how bringing language into my body more mm-hmm. or closer to my body, having it move through my body rather than the usual path through my head and then out my mouth mm-hmm. with, in a disembodied way, which mm-hmm. I think English, German, those, mm-hmm. those old Western languages mm-hmm. are very disconnected from most of reality. Mm-hmm. And as uh, educators, it's also important for me to recognize um, for folks when they are doing some aspect of what they say can't be done. So just even in, in your communicating, just that you are, although folks can't see it, you are gesturing mm-hmm. with your hands. So you are engaging in... Right. It's like I'm using my hands to try and demonstrate that I can't do it with words alone. Mm-hmm. 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 And that goes back to the idea of sex and sexuality, that so much of sex and sexuality is without the words. Mm-hmm. Yes. It is body communicating with other bodies mm-hmm. and communicating a knowing. And when we connect with that knowing, that shared knowing, we vibe and we mm-hmm. feel it and we know it and it's there. Mm-hmm. One of the things that African people brought to the English language is this notion that you could say the same thing with different intonation and different spirit, and it carries a different meaning. The power of the word, and the word was made flesh. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what we're bringing to Goddard and the undergraduate programs are these different ways of speaking and knowing and being. This work is so exciting how expansive it is and how much is involved in it and how deeply connected it is to 
everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a sexuality studies program like no other that you will find because both Zaleika and I have experienced the training in the field and the whiteness of the field, the white supremacy of the field, the Eurocentricity of the field, the staleness of the field. See, yeah. sexuality, sexology, I should say, actually developed right alongside settler colonialism. So when Europeans were collecting all of the knowledge that they had gained from encountering and conquering other members of the human family, they began to see differences, right? recognize differences in the sexual cultures, the overall cultures of those people from themselves. And what they then did was that they decided to start to categorize based upon those differences, placing themselves at the center of normality and placing themselves at the center of the mainstream and then making that what human meant. And the farther away you got from what was human for them, the mainstream for them, them themselves, that made you less human. Mm. Right? So that's how sexology started to develop initially, was this categorization and hierarchy of placing people. And as the field developed, there was competition to be recognized in academia, in higher education, and in European society. So sexologists became more respectable in order to gain respectability in European society. Mm -hmm. So a lot of sexology and sexuality studies is quite stale. Mm -hmm. right? That one cannot be an embodied sexologist without negative consequence. One cannot be an erotic sexologist without negative consequence. Right? And then for those of us who are black, indigenous, and people of color, to be black and brown and to be, as Dr. Tracy Gilbert last night said, sexy, mm. and to do this work, is to claim a space that is revolutionary, that is transgressive, that is disruptive mm -hmm. to the status quo, and to place oneself as a target, mm. all right? Professionally, to place oneself as a target. Financially, mm. to place oneself as a target, because doing this is disruptive to that mainstream status quo mm -hmm. that exists. And that's why there are systems in place such as the Arisha or Vudun, which we also draw from within this work. Ricardo embodies a deity within the Gede of Voodoo, which is underworld spirits that deal with sex and sexuality and moving from one place to another. He embodies Baron Samdi, and he's a very sexual trickster sexual <laughs> <laughs> trickster if you were to say that definitely or a shoe they deal with ideas of sex and sexualities ricardo i'd love for you to talk about this experience of that embodiment that you experience yeah, um, for this one, it's been really interesting. I had to like open myself up to this role because as a 
black male that is dark-skinned and same gender-loving in the dance field were often sexualized by white choreographers in the field, and they just want to have you naked for no reason. And so I felt like this was really purposeful and meaningful for me to tap into my Scorpio self of being sexual and sensual on stage and not have that fear of the white gaze being harmful on my body. And so it was a great way to bring out that jokes are in me to also show my sexual and passionate side with my partner on stage and to feel that safety or that space of resistance to make sure that I'm bringing my full self into this role that I'm playing. And so I just love it. It's one of my favorite works to do in our uh, repertoire. And there'll be some folks that I'll be flirting with in the audience, so be prepared. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and could you talk about the origin of that for you? I think that for me, with the background, uh, my parents are Jamaican, so a lot of the movements are coming from the pelvis area. And growing up, I didn't feel like I had to restrict that space, except for when I went into the ballet training where they just limit your body from using the undulation and the curvature in oneself. They just want you to be spinal and straight up. It took me some time to break away from that practice and remember the root of myself and to really activate that space where all of the information is coming from. So just tapping into that Jamaicanness that I appreciate so much. I'm whining and using my pelvis <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> One of my students last semester took a uh, authentic movement workshop in his community and used it in his areas of study with me. And so one of the things that we got to in the conversation was the difference in dance culture right, and embodied culture in a European context and an African context. And you know, correct me if, if, I, <laughs> if I say something you disagree with, uh, 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 dancers in the room. So in ballet, there is a preoccupation with escaping the ground. Mm -hmm. right? Whereas in the African context, it is about the relationship to the ground. Right? They say that the relationship between the drummer and the dancer, the drummer provides the beat upon which the dancer steps. Mm -hmm. all right? And we feel and, it through right. the ground. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that the drummer must continue to provide that beat. That the drummer does not want the dancer to step into something where there is an abyss, where there is nothing there. Mm -hmm. all right? And so that, that conversation, that call and response, and that symbiosis mm -hmm. between the drum, the ground, and the dancer. And so there, there's, a, there's something different going on in that context. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other piece is about the pelvis, right? that it is a source of generativity mm -hmm. right? that goes beyond just procreation. Mm -hmm. all right? it, is, it is something that allows for creative force, what in Taoism we, we say the connection between the breath and the shen or sexual energy, qi. Right? And that movement right, is there for health, and it's also there to connect one with the universe, because mm -hmm. right? chi operates in, in everywhere in the universe. Mm -hmm. So in these different cultures around the world, there's a recognition of the pelvis. Right? And in Europe, there's a preoccupation or a tendency to tighten mm -hmm. and restrict mm -hmm. the pelvis. All right. And there are ways in which that constriction is represented as power and being powerful, mm -hmm. when in actuality it creates a brittleness in the body. 
All right. So the whole notion of why we sit in these chairs, mm-hmm. you know, when we use the lavatory, we sit on that toilet rather than squat. Mm-hmm. All right. There's a different cultural connection to the pelvis mm-hmm. right, that has tangible material consequences for physical health, emotional health, and spiritual health. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would just say being somewhere like in Vermont where we're teaching predominantly white bodies and then being a part of the global south where we've taught in Haiti, we've taught in Trinidad or Mexico or even Texas. You see it in the body, like how up someone is rather than how down someone is in their body. And then because we teach accessible movement, so we're always trying to get someone to access what we're feeling or what we want them to feel. And so when we see them access that, like just today, literally just today, a student came up and was like, my pelvis is really tight. How do I get this? How do I move this? And then I gave him a few exercises and he was doing, he said, oh, wow, I really can feel something different down here in these folds and these creases. And I'm like, yes. Now, what have you operated in that way constantly? What things will open up within yourself. You know, I keep talking about this idea that things bubble up and out of the body. You know, we talk about water. We talk about, like I said, Olokun, which is the depths of the sea, of the ocean. It's the bottom, the ocean floor. So, like, once you unlock that, what kind of memories, what kind of things are going to pop up from your human memory, from your ancestral memory, right? And you're talking about including our pelvis in our awareness. Exactly. If we want to access the place where things bubble up from, in Taoism, the Dantian is down in that region as well. Mm-hmm. That is our power center. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the challenge of cross-cultural knowledge and information, is that when you're studying across culture, you have to, at some point, leave your worldview aside to actually invest in the worldview of another. So the prejudice around, oh, well, lower chakra, lower in the context of Kundalini, mm-hmm. does not mean less than or negative. It is the, the low, that's the foundation. That's the source. Right, <laughs> right. But you, but you have to be able to go into the worldview, the, what we call the ontology, the mm-hmm. value system of the culture that created it to understand, oh, so lower means, oh, that is the ground right. through which the plants sprout. Mm-hmm. Right. Without which we have no place to come from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think of the water lily comes up out of mud. Mm-hmm. and then reaches through all the way through the water, comes up, and then it blossoms into this beautiful flower. You know, But we only focus on the end result. Mm-hmm. Right. We never focus on the process. And so I think if we're more process-oriented in our thought, then we wouldn't have a value system set up on dark or light. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. being connected with the earth, our mother, where we come from, as opposed to the notion of the quote unquote, the father up there somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, disembodied, disconnected, mm-hmm. ungrounded. And mm-hmm. in, in comedic spirituality, actually, it's, it's it's also the reverse. So Geb is, if you want to use the gender constructs, which don't really apply completely, 
in a comedic context or ancient Egyptian, Geb is quote unquote male, and Nut, the sky, is female. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And there, there's representation of the connectedness, the images that people can Google Geb and Nut and they can see the connection where they connect up in terms of their bodies, how it was represented on the on the temples and the pyramids. It's a, it's a deep wisdom around the relationship between pluralities as well as sexualities. Mm -hmm. Well, yay for more fluidity. <laughs> 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 Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I mean, the time just flew today. I mean, this is such a fascinating, fascinating topic and um, could go on forever. Yeah. <laughs> and it will. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, um, Orlando Zane Hunter Jr., yes. thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you. Thank you. And Ricardo Valentine, yes. thank you so much. Thank you. And... The two of you are Brotherhood Dance. Yes, yes we are. And Harukati, Dr. Harukati Sharif Williams, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, have a uh, sensual week. Yes. Thank you.